The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Holy God, author of truth, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Church, we have been studying the human heart. We focused on a core truth. We are shaped by the things we love. The things we love guide our steps. The things we love write our to-do lists. The things we love set our ethical compasses. When we make decisions, big decisions, small decisions, good decisions, bad decisions, we make them based on our heart's deepest desires. You are what you love. Recognizing this, we have been taking a close look at the things we really, really deep down love. We've asked What's healthy in here and what's not? Along the way, we've, we've sought to rid ourselves of toxic loves. And we've asked, are there better loves, higher loves, loves capable of grounding us in this life? We've talked about love for God, love for self, love for neighbor. We've talked about what it means to love Jesus and to love justice, and to love mercy. Today, in the final sermon in this series, our attention turns to the good. What does it mean to love the good? As we ponder that question, let us listen together now for God's word. As it echoes to us from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, Chapter 5, beginning with the 15th verse. See that none of you repays evil for evil. Seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God.
Cormac McCarthy's apocalyptic novel, The Road, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, has got to be the most devastating book I've ever read. Over the years, more than a few novels have reduced me to tears. I needed a box of tissues to finish Ann Tyler's St. Maybe, John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, Toni Morrison's Beloved, the list goes on. What can I say? I'm a softie. But the road wins the prize. It hit me in a specially vulnerable place. I sobbed through the entire final chapter. McCarthy's book begins innocently enough. Somewhere in the United States, a father and his 10-year-old son walk down a road. Quickly, though, we realize this is no ordinary stroll. Something terrible has happened. A global disaster has occurred. Is it nuclear war? Is it an epidemic? Is it some climate disaster? We don't know. The cause is never explained. But the results are clear. Society has descended into chaos. A great number of people have died. Those who survive scavenge for food and clothing and other necessities. It's, it's a zombie story without the zombies. As the book unfolds, father and son walk through a bleak landscape. They push a shopping cart with their meager possessions in it. A few cans of food, a couple of blankets, a pistol with two bullets in it. It's a lonely journey. And maybe that's okay, because the worst and, and most frightening moments in the novel occur when the father and son encounter other people, people who have abandoned all morals and ethics. The man and the boy live, as the Presbyterian Brief Statement of Faith puts it, in a broken and fearful world. What keeps them going? We get hints of this as the father and son talk. As they travel down the road, the, the two try to make sense of, of the world and their place in it. After one frightening chase, the son asks, who are these people? Are, are they bad guys? Yes, the father responds, they are bad guys. After witnessing a gruesome scene, the son asks, we would never eat anybody, would we? No, says the father, of course not. Because we're good guys, the son responds. Yes, says the father, because we're good guys. What does it mean to be good guys? That question haunts the book. And, and, and in it, McCarthy is really probing the limits of our ethics. Does it make sense to hang on to your morals when the world is falling apart? To most who walk the road, the answer is no. 
The end justifies the means. I will do whatever I have to do to survive. At, at times on their journey, the father approaches that mindset. But he never completely embraces it. Why? Because he travels with his beloved boy. Despite the horrors that they witness along the way, the boy gives steady voice to a simple code. We don't do things like that. We are good people. What does it mean to be good people? In today's scripture passage, the Apostle Paul ponders this question. In a letter written to Christians living in Thessalonica, Paul says, I know you're feeling a bit wobbly. I know you've been shaken by trials. I know the world looks down on you and your faith. Like the father and son in McCarthy's novel, the Thessalonians have been knocked around by a me-first, take-no-prisoners culture. Sensing their anxiety, Paul speaks comfort to them. He offers the Thessalonians a vision. One day, one day, says the apostle, Christ will return to rule over the world, to make all things right. Until that day comes, though, Paul exhorts, do not forget who you are. You stand in the midst of a troubled and confusing world, but your identity is clear. You are children of light. Embrace this truth. Every day, says Paul, before you walk out the door, gird yourself with faith and hope and love. Learn to love what God loves. Let God's heart guide you through trial and tribulation. Where does God's heart lead us? Well, says Paul in the passage from Thessalonians that's printed in your bulletin, let's start with this. Do not repay evil with evil. Punch buggy, no punchbacks. That was radical counsel back in the first century. The Roman emperor Domitian was not exactly known for his compassion. Ask any Roman centurion, forgiveness, forgiveness is for chumps. If someone hurts you, hurt them back. If someone trashes you, you double down. If someone drags your name through the mud, you drag their name through the mud. You dust it with flour and then you drag it right back through the mud again. Sound familiar? Don't go there, says Paul. Don't get sucked into an endless cycle of conflict. Don't double down on pain. Don't let your wounded ego call the shots. Do not let the bad things you've seen on the road break your spirit. Instead, says the apostle, set your heart on the good. Wrap your arms tightly around the good. Do good to everyone you meet. And while you're at it, says Paul, let the spirit lift your spirit. Be joyful, prayerful, thankful. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. Now that sounds like the sort of advice an apostle might give, but, but, but we wonder, don't we? Is it enough? We're walking down troubling roads. As we read the news, as we try to process all the political lies, as, as, as we navigate our way through a landscape torn by racial conflict, rife with economic disparity and addicted to misinformation. The apostles' counsel might seem inadequate, ephemeral, fluffy idealism. Hold on to the good? Are you kidding me, Paul? How about this? How about hold on to something that communicates, don't mess with me? How about hold on to the leash of a Rottweiler? How about hold on to a really big stick? What does it even mean to hold on to the good? Over the years, I've read a number of books from the world of business. And one of my favorites is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Collins studies companies that have a solid foundation, but over time make a leap forward to become a leader in their sector. In the 1980s, Walgreens was an average company, but then suddenly Walgreens began to grow five to ten times faster than its competitors. What happened? What enabled Walgreens to go from being merely good to out and out great? The answer, says Collins, lies in the company's willingness to throw off the shackles of complacency and mediocrity According to Collins, the enemy of great is not bad. The enemy of great is good, as in good enough. I've used Collins' book on staff retreats and in leadership events to talk about the challenges facing the church. I find it helpful. But I also find its use of language sort of disturbing. When did we start treating the word good as if it were synonymous with okay, with a middling performance? When, when did good become a three on a scale of one to five? When did good become mediocre? How you're doing? I'm good. When did good becomes synonymous with so-so. I fear we've made a category mistake in this country. Let me put it this way. Do great and good measure the same things? Do great and good measure the same things? Last year, a crisis swept through Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. Bill Hybels, an influential pastor who built that congregation from zero to 25,000 weekly Sunday worshipers 
was forced to step down. He left his post as pastor in the wake of accusations of misconduct from women on the church's staff and from women who were parishioners. A number of other pastors were forced out too. The entire board of elders, the governing body of the church, resigned. What happened? Well, some pain, pin the blame squarely on Hybels. And maybe that's where it belongs. But others see Hybels as a symptom of a deeper problem. What sort of problem? After all, Willow Creek was, was blowing and going and growing. People filled the sanctuary. The numbers were fantastic. And yet, in the aftermath of the scandal, both staff and officers reported that they felt exhausted and unfulfilled. We've been running a lot of people through this church, said one elder. Our numbers are really good. But we don't seem to be growing in faith. I don't feel any closer to God. Things at Willow Creek were great. But they weren't good. Do you know places like that? The world is quick to applaud the great. It encourages us to chase after the great. And I suppose that makes sense. Greatness is something that you can measure. Great is better than average. Great is a sizable jump in profits. Great is a number. Great is quantifiable. Good, on the other hand, good is not a number. Good is a judgment. It's a moral conclusion. It is, says the Apostle Paul, a commitment to do what God calls us to do. Now, at the end of the day, I, I still like Jim Collins' book. Churches can learn from well-run businesses. They can learn a lot. But still, I hope you're not surprised when I say this exchange of ideas ought to run both ways. Businesses have something to learn from moral communities. They have something to learn from the Thessalonians. What? Well, let's start with this. Sometimes things are great, but not so good. When vulnerable people are treated with disdain. When a manufacturing plant leaves a town in the middle of the night seeking cheaper labor, when refugees are disparaged for seeking better lives, when the fabric of community is, is sacrificed in the pursuit of bigger and better numbers, the good stands in judgment over the great. You can hit your goal and lose your soul. The Apostle Paul gets this. He worries about the pressures on the church in Thessalonica. And, and so he reaches out. He, he starts knitting hats for them and printed with the words, make Thessalonica good again. Smack in the middle of Roman civilization. 
with all its cultural advancements and all its debauched violence, Paul knows the great needs to be tempered by the good. Needs to be guided by the good. Someone has to stand up for the sacred and the true. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, implores them, hold on. And, and that's, it's that plea, it's the apostle's plea that takes me back to the, the father and the son walking down Cormac McCarthy's dystopian road. As you read their story, as you work your way through that book, slowly, and this is the genius of it, slowly it dawns on you, the most awful possibility facing these two travelers is not that they will die. Countless people have already died in that world. The most heartbreaking outcome would be if the world smashed their moral compass. This is the tension that kept me turning the pages. Would the father and son lose their capacity for compassion? What does it mean to hold on to the good? There are a lot of ways, I guess, to answer that question. But I think our activity here in worship this morning is one. Today is Pledge Sunday. Today we will commit ourselves to supporting the work of this church throughout the coming year in 2020. Now ultimately, today is not really about supporting a budget. Oh, we have a budget, don't worry. It funds our ministries. It's careful and thoughtful and faithful. Our budget exists because of your generous gifts, but today, is about something deeper than budget. It's about what we want to hold on to in life. Now, I don't know how you decide what you're going to give to the church every year. I do hope that you give to the church every year. And I have to say this because I got a little depressed last week when I read a study by Notre Dame uh, sociologist Christian Smith who reports that 20% of people who regularly attend Christian churches give nothing. They give nothing to their church and they give nothing to any other charity. 20%. In the face of this, churches are kind of Don Quixote tilting at windmills. We talk about giving 10% a tithe to God's work every year. But Smith says on average, and he breaks this down by denomination, on average, Presbyterians give less than 2% to charities every year. Now, I don't know how you make decisions about your charitable giving, about your generosity. I don't know if you're one of those people who pulls out a calculator and whips up a spreadsheet, or if giving for you is a sort of spur of the moment uh, thing. But what I do know is that pledging is a decision that arises out of faith. Amy and I tithe. We give 10% of our income to charity and the bulk of our charitable giving goes to this church. 
we're not alone. There are others in this room who do the same. This pledge has an effect on our family finances. Every year, our planning starts out with what we'll give to FAPC, and from there, we make a decision about the allocation of the rest of our resources. As my friend Tom R. says, our faith is supposed to set our priorities, and when you tithe, it does that. It also feels just plain joyful. It feels good to contribute to the life-changing work that goes on around here. I'm not sure it's possible to drop a pledge card in one of these burgundy-colored baskets down here and to feel grumpy <laughs> as you're doing it. But I've worried at times. Last year, I spoke about this. I spoke about the joy that comes from being connected to the work of the church. I spoke of being able to walk by out on Fifth Avenue and to look up at the building and to say, I am a part of that. And about two weeks after my sermon, a fellow stopped me on the street right outside over here in front of the Peninsula Hotel and said to me, Pastor, I listened to what you said. I pledged, but I still haven't felt the joy. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I knew a little bit about the guy. I knew where he lived, and I knew what he did for, the li for a living, but I needed more information. Why wasn't this fellow feeling joy? Searching for a clue, I went back and looked him up in our database. There, next to his name, was his annual pledge. And immediately, I knew why he wasn't feeling joy. He wasn't giving enough. His pledge wouldn't put the smallest of dents in his finances. It wouldn't make him change one priority. It wouldn't make him miss a weekly latte at Starbucks. Of course he wasn't feeling joy. The poor man wasn't giving enough to feel anything. I know this. I know this because I witnessed the opposite all the time here in the halls of this church. I see people here with very different financial profiles and bank account balances who make commitments to this church that they can feel. And you know what? I can tell who those people are without looking at the database. They're the ones walking around this place with a sense of ownership, with those silly grins on their face, with a, with a sense of sacred pride. They're the ones who will tell you that while this world is a mess, that's no excuse for sticking your charitable head in the sand. I know who you are. You're the ones who are determined amidst all the craziness and nastiness to wrap your arms around a holy alternative to hold on to the good. Pledging does this. 
It changes your perspective. It invites you. It encourages you to say, I'm a part of, of the lives that are being changed downstairs in the Skinner shelter. I'm a part of Sunday school children right now learning that they are beloved of God. I'm a part of the work of missionaries in Madagascar and the Philippines. I'm a part of an AIDS orphanage in Lesotho. I'm a part of a hand being held in a, in a hospital in Queens. I'm, I'm a part of talented musicians singing the faith with with power and beauty. I'm a part of a women's shelter out in Brooklyn getting new flowers in their flower beds. I'm a part of Meals on Heels delivering a supper to the Upper East Side. I'm a part of a Pakistani refugee in Philadelphia getting to go to college. I'm a part of a heartbroken couple being comforted upstairs in one of our pastor's offices. I'm a part of a mission trip attendee speaking with empathy about refugees. I'm a part of social worker John Sheehan handing a family of four winter jackets and two backpacks full of school supplies. It's impossible for me to run down that list and not feel proud of you, grateful for you, joy over what we are about here. My friends, Everyone in this room is walking down a challenging road. There's acrimony in the air out there. The most natural thing to do would be to turn away. But you are here. You are here because one way or another, you have heard the apostles cry floating on the wind and you've screwed your courage to the wall for the living of these days. You've decided as you walk down the road to hold on to the good. Bless you for this commitment. I wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving and I give thanks to God for your generous, generous hearts. Go out into this Thanksgiving week with the words of the Apostle Paul ringing in your ears. Do not repay evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 Four nine one, eight three three one. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, 
to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.